Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the Coaching Bubble podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Behan, and throughout the series, we hope to delve into all things coaching. We want the show to be for everyone, all sports, all coaches, from novice to elite, and we hope that you can take away some tips and advice to apply to your own coaching journey. The series is brought to you by the Coach Education and Development Centre of the Camogie Association. You can follow us on Twitter, at Bubble Coaching, where we'll post everything related to the show. You can listen to us on SoundCloud. We'd love to hear from you, so feel free to leave some comments or reviews. On today's episode, we talk to Liam Morgan. Often referred to as the godfather of coaching or the coach's coach, Liam has worked with a huge array of sports and with some of the most successful coaches in the country. Recently retired from Coaching Ireland as a coach educator, we talk to Liam about his own coaching philosophy, his views on planning and reflective practice, and the importance of coaching the person and not the sport. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and I hope you enjoy. Liam, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks a million for coming on. Um, so Liam, you've worked in a variety of sports, GAA, athletics, equestrian, to name but a few. And you've also worked with a lot of coaches who are household names here in Ireland. And we'll get to those, but I want to ask you first, how did you initially get into coaching? Well, thanks. Thanks for asking me here first, Stephen. Um, I'm 62 now, so I suppose your preamble there, I've worked with a lot of coaches. Just being around for 62 years allows me to have that experience, all right. I'm from Chewham. I went to the Christian Brothers in Chewham. And the day I started in secondary school, a Christian brother started teaching there, a brother, Willie Morgan. He was from Ennis Diamond in County Clare. And while I'd been involved in sport, mainly athletics, uh, I hadn't really been introduced to any formal coaching, if I'd call it that. But Brother Morgan was an adult, the likes of which I never saw before. I'd never experienced anybody like him. And I could sum it up in one way in that he was the first adult that invited me to think for myself. And it was an extremely demanding thing. I used to come out in a sweat or a rash or whatever. I, I wasn't used to having the opportunity to think for myself. Now, he taught us maths. He introduced us to basketball. Uh, we had never seen a game of basketball. It had never come into our heads. We never knew anything about basketball. And he introduced us to it in a very slow way. We never played anybody for our first year. Second year, we only played games against Ballinrobe. Third year, we entered f- semi-formal competitions that he organised. And then we won the All-Ireland twice before we left Leaving Cert. So amazing. it was amazing. And, and really through him, I got a grow or an interest in coaching or this, this uh, atmosphere of helping people to improve, I suppose. I would never have seen him as a coach. Uh, and yet... In many ways, I'd look back now and probably try to emulate him. I went on to be, go to Limerick to become a PE teacher. So he, without doubt, was, was the first big introduction to that concept of, of coaching. Uh, and I'm very lucky to have had that approach with him because he also had a very holistic approach. I ran as well, and he was my, my running coach. And uh, I, I improved, which I suppose, is, and, and the team improved. And I suppose that's the biggest test but the group of us that were together with Brother Morgan are still friends. We're still tune-based when we get there. We're still centred around a lot of the stories and the lives and the careers nearly that Brother Morgan 
set us out on or steered us towards. And do those stories, do they get better with age? Does uh, they get a little bit more dramatic as you go along? We, we ran so much faster, Steve, <laughs> and so much longer, and some of the shots we scored were from so far out from the halfway line. You wouldn't believe it. We actually got three pointers before the rule for three pointers were brought in. <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good. Yeah. More recently, you were working with Coach in Ireland as, as predominantly as a coach educator, um, and you would have worked with as I mentioned, a lot of household names. So we're talking Brian Kerr during the underage soccer success, Billy Walsh of boxing fame, uh, an All-Ireland win with Kerry and Eamon Fitzmaurice. Yeah, very lucky. I was with Jerry McGill too and the Dublin ladies won in 2010. I've been lucky where I've been around. I haven't coached directly with Brother Colm O'Connell, the Irish man who operates out of E10 in Kenya. He was 40, 70, 70 during the week. And they've actually renamed the main street in E10, which is a fairly small street, O'Connell Street, after him, which is nice. But I mention him because I've never coached directly with him, but I have seen him in action as a coach. And he's had a big influence. But those names you mention are, are all true and correct. But there's other people uh, that I've worked and seen in operation that were equally good. And I suppose it brings in the difficulties of the real concept of what coaching is. It's often judged as being linked to performers who are, are seen in a high performance field where some of the really great coaches that I have seen have worked in the shadows of the dark and uh, don't necessarily get the same acknowledgement and are extraordinary coaches as well. Two would come to mind immediately. John Shields was an unusual character that I came across. I started teaching in art school Rish, and I had a dream of of having a base of athletes that might win in All-Ireland schools cross-country that hadn't ran before they came to Wardscall. But very quickly, I found out the school up the road, St. David's, CBS, RTN, were, were mega. They were, they were, they were the, the top in the, school, in, the, in the country and made contact with John Shields, or he with me. And unlike any other coach I have come across to this day, John's mission was to help me become a better coach. And he actually applauded the improvements that the Wardscall lads made. And I found he was deeply informed, he was deeply knowledgeable. But he saw the bigger picture of things way before I did. I only saw Orthgall and, and against maybe Davis and the others. He saw a far, far bigger picture. And my first introduction to Paralympics uh, in Ireland was through seeing Johnny Fulham and Patrice Dockery, two great wheelchair competitors, train in Santry as often I was training. But there was a coach there, Mairead Ferguson, she was a classmate of Patrice Dockery, who started as a carer, just helping Patrice become involved in PE and sport, then became more active as a coach, and then began to search for information on how to be a coach to a Paralympic track competitor. And she devoted time and expertise and uh, everything to becoming a really, really good coach, and, and was and is, and yet hasn't got that kind of acknowledgement. So... I, I do applaud all the people that I work with who are, are, are named out there. But there are many, many people too that are just in the shadows that don't always get it that I've learned as much from and are, are as effective as the others. And yeah, you say you learned as much from your role as the coach educator or the mentor maybe to them or whatever it may be. But you feel you learned just as much from them as they would have from you? Oh, all of them, Stephen, yeah. Lar Foley was the trainer, Dublin manager, I think it was back in 1988, he arrived into the staff room in Art School Reach and asked me would I be the physical fitness trainer. Now I'm from Galway, I was reared on stories that the Foley's were, were rough by us, you know. <laughs> and I saw the size of Lar and the red face in him, I kind of stalled for a while. I've told the story a few times, but 
he was known as a guy who was strong and physical and maybe brutal. And, he, and, and the, those stories were true. But I also saw a man who was as gentle and as kind as any man I've ever met. So he had a, he had a full breadth from being really, really tougher than I could be and gentler than I could be. So that, that, that was a valuable experience, just, just seeing the way he worked. Um, he had a thing on Saturdays, I used to play small sided games, which back in 88, 89 were fairly novel. And he was very good at standing back and letting me at things, you know. Um, and he then wanted to take over these small sided games on Saturdays. And he, he decided the teams and he used to divide it between what he called the workers, the manual workers who he loved and was felt connected to as a farmer and the pen pushers, anyone who went to universities in that. And it was nearly a half half on the team. But of course, the pen pushers would be hockeyed every Saturday. <laughs> they were battered around the place. So I could see no value in it. But Lar, on a regular basis, he would summarise the day in applauding the, 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 the workers who won and said, look, we got one piece of the jigsaw of life. Ye who went to university got 99 pieces of it, but ye didn't get the piece we have. And we need each other. And that was a very, that was a very deep message. You know, all the world's a stage and each must play his part. Don't know if Lar would have quoted Elvis, but that, <laughs> that, 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 that idea of everybody playing a part, everybody making a contribution, they don't teach that in college. They, they don't teach that formally. And here was a farmer, a man who cut the grass, who made the pitches, who was able to appeal to all of them, able to be strong, able to be gentle, able to be curious, able to stand back and listen, uh, able to be forceful when he needed be. To get close to people like that, it's, it's, it's a great opportunity. And did the players respond to that? Oh, wonderfully so. I still get haunted about a Leinster final we lost. We got to a Leinster final after 36 years and lost to Kilkenny. But to bridge that gap, to get that far. And then when they did win, uh, Kieran Hetherington, who was on that team, was a selector with the team there more recently. That was a very emotional kind of a link back to the seeds that Lar had sown. The way I mentioned in Lara is now the perception of me, a Galway fella, big, strong, rough man. But, but there was a lot, lot more to him. And that's what I found with a lot of coaches. There's this thing we see, and then there's the bit beyond them. And it's the bit beyond them that some share or some expose. But you right, got, really, re, got to get close to that. Brian Kerr and Jerry Mullins are two what would be regarded as high-performing coach that, coaches that... <laughs> I'm always on edge working with them because they demand high standards. They want high standards. And when it's achieved, they're happy for a while and they'll be very good to reinforce things with you. But very quickly you get the sense, gee, that standard is no longer good enough. They want it better again. And they work. Both of them work hard. It's hard being around them. They, they're intense in their efforts to search for the next right answer. They're searching, searching, searching all the time. Uh, so it's great to have the chance to be around them and to get used to this thing. Well, being around these guys is going to be tough. No, no better roses, but, but you'll gain at the same time. Yeah, and do you find that much? So you would obviously, like we've talked about several different sports. Do you find you have to change your approach when you're dealing with, as in to suit the person, to suit the team? The most important people are the people you're coaching. Uh, I have often, Stephen, you might have heard me before, my daughter Roisin once said to me, it's not all about you, Dad. Traumatic thing to be told in front of your wife and two other daughters. <laughs> but every time, that, that, that ha I, I throw that out as a kind of a joke, but that really was a moment where, now, maybe that moment, more and more reflection afterwards. 
Every time I'm with somebody or some group, by far the most important person in the process is that person or, or the group. There's, there's, there's no doubt about that. It's never, it's never about me. Now, the, the word all is in the phrase. It's not all about you, Dad. There's a certain amount of planning that's required. There's a certain amount of preparation that's required. There's knowledge that's needed. But once they're there, it's their training session. It's their situation. And the aim then is to change behaviour. Now, when it, when it works, that change is absolute. So if you go back in now the next day and start doing it the very same way you did it before or treating that person the way you trained them before, you're, you're, you're actually pulling them back. So the dynamic to constantly work hard and to be humble then and accept that it's they that's making the improvements and you as a coach are improving. And I suppose in many cases, I would also feel that the people I worked with, if I could do what they were doing, I'd prefer to be doing it rather than helping them do it. So it gives you a nice position in the hierarchy of I'm, I'm here to serve. And if I, that, that's my role. And then back off when they're doing it, disappear, let, let, let them at it. Yeah. I remember being at the GAA coaching conference um, a few years ago and a guy called Wade Gilbert was there and that was the main thing I took away from his talk. He started saying coaching is all about people. Yeah, people have asked me at times, you know, this, what's that phrase about being a jack of all trades and a master of none? You know, and they say, how, how can you coach in various sports, snooker, show jumping, golf or whatever? And of course, the answer is I don't. I coach people, people who ride horses, people who play football people who hurl, people who run. You coach people. Uh, while I'm often associated with the various other teams, one of the people I've coached or had a, a relationship with over a long period of time is Annette Keeley, a runner with Rohini Shamrocks. And my start-up position with Annette was unusual. I was coaching her boyfriend, now, now her husband, and her now brother-in-law, Ben, ben Brady and Owen Brady. And I had ideas about myself as a coach. I was there with the flip chart. I was there with the stopwatch. I had coloured pens for all the various sessions. And she arrived on the scene. And for the first week or two, I, I can't remember if she spoke to me, but she was jogging around while we were into our serious stuff of intervals and speed endurance and everything. One day she asked me, would I coach her? And I exaggerate now fully, but I nearly took as an affront. Jeepers, you know, do you know who I am? But Annette, over those years I have known her, Annette, 15 years ago won the World Masters 5,000 metres on the track that's for over 35 and this year she's won the World European over 50 10k road championships and that's 15 years that's four children later and my journey with Annette I'm no longer prescribing sessions or even models of sessions of any kind we, we chat and we talk but it started with a very mundane, do this, do this, do this, observe, then gradually getting feedback from her, then learning from her, then beginning to find out more and more that where I was wrong, for example. And uh, then now seeing it is about assisting and helping someone. She's had four children. She's, she's, she's a practicing barrister now. She was a teacher. So it's always about coaching the person that's there and letting them evolve and grow. As a coach educator, how do you try and get, let's say, novice coaches or coaches who are trying to better themselves, how do you try and make them see that it's about the people and not the sport? I never thought I'd end up as a tutor trainer, we'll say, the trainer of the people who train the coaches. I never thought I'd, I'd end up doing that. And I suppose the, the way I got landed with that, Pat Duffy, who was a visionary coach educator, a world-leading a world figure in the whole thing, Pat 
gave me the job. It says, you, you, you're delivering those courses. And it was a, a very stressful time just even delivering the first few with two people over from England, Penny Crisfield and Pauline Harrison. So mirroring them for a while. And then really finding because of the divergence of sports that were in the room, I, I saw really that there was a need to develop the character in the person rather than, I didn't know, I didn't know about the sport. But in some way, I looked at the people I admired most were characters. They were off the, the radar a little bit. They were, like, like I mentioned, Lar Foley, I mentioned John Sheeves, Marine they're, they're happy in their own skin. They're, they're people who know each other. So one of the things I tried to do in the, in the tutor course was destabilize them a little bit in order that I could reinforce that stability of themselves. So very quickly, I began to introduce, um, on the basis of plan, do, review, dividing them in groups which were safe, singing songs, for example. That might take, that might take a morning. So I'd let them do it and bring it back and in, informally and without them knowing it, review it. You know, what you like, what was good about it, what would you do if you're doing it differently? Let the four or five groups and then say, right, we are going to do it again and we're going to implement those changes you brought about. And always there was improvement. Always. Now you say, what's, what's the madness of that? It really took them out of their comfort zone. So the character that was in them, that humanity that was in them of now doing something which they're trying to encourage in players, do something that makes you uncomfortable. Here was the coaches now developing that empathy. Wow, this is uncomfortable. And then going through the process of plan it, do it and review it and do it again. And now I say, God, that works. That works. Uh, and of course, we saw strengths and weaknesses. And of course, we saw that dynamic of people improving. And there was the important message that in that situation, it was a hell of a lot easier in a group than if I'd asked them individually to come back in and sing. So again, the whole idea that coaching is about people, it's about the people around you and getting all of them to work together towards the vision or the goal or the dream that's been there. Not, not, not to put yourself on a pedestal. I, I'm, I'm now that person. All hierarchies service. So it's to serve all around you. So I don't know, what, I can't remember your precise question now on that, but it was to set up, what I tried to do was create a climate of people working together and bringing in coaching principles like plan, do, review, more later on than something more specific like setting outcomes, asking questions, listening, start and finish on time, group management, all of those things. But it started with this growing a relationship with them in the group, establishing that, creating a climate that we're here to improve, landing some key broad messages that are fundamental to make that happen, and then getting into the nitty gritty that allowed each individual do it to the best of their ability, their smile, their wink, their eye contact, their little phrases that worked in their areas or whatever. Releasing them. Personality is best when it's released. And look, with my age and coming from the West of Ireland, a lot of the formal education, a lot of it was about making sure you didn't release anything out of them. <laughs> you know, it was copying and mimicking and aping exactly what was there. And the, there was massive restrictions to allowing people to be released. So I suppose as a bit of a reaction to that, I tried to release people's character, encourage them to go to places that might make a mistake. And uh, and then we can fix it. Now let's fix it. Paddy Butler, a guy I know that you know and, and was well known in Camogie circles, he was the one that really nailed this thing about review one day with me, where I'd asked him to come in, demonstrate a top class presentation. But when he released it to the tutors, they made an absolute mess of it. It was crazy stuff. 
And my reaction was, ooh, jeepers, look what's after happening now, you know? What's going to happen? And Paddy did a brilliant review where he said to the guy who did it and encouraged him and the fella said, God, I'd love another chance at doing it. And I was appalled when Paddy says, well, I'll give you another chance, but you'll need to have a little bit of time planning with your team beforehand. And of course, when he came back, it was magnificent, magnificent. And I remember looking and thinking, wow, look at the change in behaviour there. But it came by plan, do, review, and now give another chance. Paddy that taught me about the importance of allowing time to do, give them the chance to show the improvement. And of course, we left that day thinking, wow, look at that, look at that. So different characters can release different messages at different times. Would you have, you would have had like coaches from the top end, let's say, coming down to you in, in mm. Limerick. It was the training, National Training Centre. It was National Coaching and Training Centre was called first. And yeah. then moved into Coaching, coaching Ireland. Ireland. But you would have had yeah. the top guys coming into you. Would you mm. find any resistance that they would have had towards that formal opportunities for learning? Uh, it was huge, Stephen. It was set up in 91, National Coaching and Training Centre. It was set up on the basis of a survey that uh, Cuspor did where they really found that of the coaches in Ireland, about roughly about 70% of them had no coach education qualifications at all, no training. And those who had roughly 30%, they only had training in the specifics of the sport. So you would maybe go and play football again or do the long jump again. And a, maybe a rough criteria of a course for a coach would be you'd be stiff and sore following it. But they didn't get any gems of how to coach, observe, demonstrate, analyze, give feedback, none of those. Pat Duffy's vision that Pat Duffy saw, well, if we're really to make an impact, the people who know the sport are the governing bodies. And if we're to allow them be independent, then our role should be to help to train the people they appoint to be their coach educators. Now, it was a, it was a very novel approach on a worldwide scale. And it needed a big jump from authoritative structures in the sense that we're giving independence to governing bodies. We were not controlling them. We were saying, come down to Limerick, we'll train your selected people to go back to you better to go work as coach educators. And off you go within certain guidelines of that would be allowed certification and so forth. So it met resistance because I can remember it was the first time you'd be in the room with people from different sports. You may get in a room with people from different sports around awards time at Christmas. But other than that, there's no reason for someone in athletics to meet someone from hockey, to meet someone from basketball, to meet someone from equestrian. No reason at all. So suddenly now we're all together in the room. So when the first courses were set up, we were disappointed that the people, the governing bodies selected were, in many cases, administrators who were curious about what, what's this tutor training crack going on. And Pat brought us together when we were disappointed. And Pat said, no, our first job has to be to inform them what it's about. And if they bite the bait, if they see what it is and return to their governing bodies as the people who will make the selections, then we're doing our job well. And really the initial courses of about two years, three courses were populated by people who in the main were not coaching, but they were curious and they were sent by their governing bodies to find out. And of course, that really set the foundation stone to inform the governing bodies. This works. This is about you, not about something that's based in Limerick. And again, that takes in that whole idea of coaching, of, of, of being there to help, being there to serve, find out where people are at and give them time to move on to the next step. Obviously, Coaching Ireland has evolved a lot since then. And is it still a similar sort of a setup in terms of um, the formal learning opportunities where you bring people in from, from the different sports? Or is it more like a community of practice where people 
share experiences? I suppose it's a bit of both. Our, our, our aim, our aim was to to help change behaviour. I, I used to put the word help there sometimes because I, you, we can't change anyone else's behaviour. And the things that the work of those who worked in coaching and learning can be happy with is is change of behaviour has occurred. It has occurred at coaches level in every field in swimming pool and basketball court. And it has changed in the way governing bodies carry out their work. So then there must be a reaction to that change. So the, the mentoring, which needs greater greater support and bigger numbers, there's a need for that now that maybe not have been there before. Whether it's still tr- true to the values that I would have seen it about allowing people be themselves, I'm not too sure. I, I'm not at all happy about measures of assessment that are brought in. I don't think you can measure with certainty something as uncertain as coaching. I think it's fundamentally flawed that you would attempt to judge the end product of coaching. And and in that dynamic, I, I, would, I would openly be critical of, of, of developments that have happened. I would see the assessment as it is at the minute. It would be like judging a chef for his combina- com- compilation of ingredients without really seeing what the end product of the meal is like that the end product could be a year's time, two years' time, three years' time. So really it's in no one's remiss to be judging, assessing what happens at a step in a process which ultimately could take a long, long time. So I would encourage coaches to be extremely patient about what it, judging themselves, uh, to take their eye off the ball of the awful bluntness of medals and cups and trophies. They're there and they'd be nice. But they wear off awful quickly too, and I have learned that by being there on the good on the good days. It cheaper the next morning. You wonder if, is that it? And of course, if that's it, you're into a big disappointment. There has to be more. So seeing the light in people's faces, seeing the progress they're going to make, uh, just hearing and seeing the joy that they have in doing what we're lucky enough to help them do. Gee, if we blind ourselves to that, we're missing we're missing an awful lot. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier on in, in terms of uh, the review part. So you'd have your coaches plan something, do it, and then review it and go again. Um, that sort of reflective practice, I suppose, is coming in more and more. How important do you think that is? Do you think that's the be-all and end-all? You, you have to be constantly reviewing. There's a place for it. I mean, I've mentioned the plan, do, and review already, and that kind of fits in with before, during, and after as well. Um, and there is, there is a loop there. And again, in formal work, and I'm not discouraging formal work at all, that plan, do, review can be a bit predictable at times. But if I go informally to the coaches that I look up to and admire, they would be what people might have described as self-critical. So, so there's a review. Some of them may have sought some external review, but in the main, they're self-critical of themselves. They, they look to what they attempted to do reviewed it very critically and then went and changed to try to adapt that. So I don't think it's anything new, this idea of planned review. It's just the way in which it's delivered sometimes can seem as if it's an, an extra layer to the process, where it, it isn't really. And that description I gave of Paddy Butler, plan, do, review, do again, plan again. Um, so I think it's, it's bread and butter to those who are successful and it it, ne- it needs to be done. I mean, facilitation of a review of what happens is, is, is very, very good. An aspiring coach or a, or a coach who's just learned his trade cap, 
is that something that they can do themselves do you think or should, or or is there more place for like a mentoring or people coming in to uh, help yeah, them to, out? to see others so see ourselves as others see us is always very val- valuable and can be hurtful at times too. <laughs> yeah. But but it's good. It's like a mirror. I mean, I don't like what I see in the mirror most times now, but the mirror is a good is a good reflective tool. Now, who's reviewing you is important. I mean, I, I talk about blocks of you grow the relationship, you create a climate, and then you get the change of behaviour. I don't think a good reviewer can ever really be imposed on you. And I suppose the verb there is important, imposed. They'd need to be someone that, one, you, you feel already there's a relationship where there and they know what they're looking for. So what is it they're looking for? Is it the end result of the players performing at a higher level after one session? Is it about looking for elements of creating a climate of learning whereby the session may end in chaos? No learning has happened, but a review took place that would kickstart what they'll do the next day. So the best reviewers are people, I think, not necessarily who've been there, I've never been on a horse and worked with show jumpers, but people who know the process, know what the, have an empathy for the difficulty and the challenge that's involved. And the more of those kind of people are out there, and they're there, uh, I, I think they're godsend to coaches, real godsend. The confidentiality in that process would be extremely important. And also the ability of the reviewer to also go into that process with the coaches what in the sense of, well I, I don't know you don't know and I don't know but let's have let, let's have a chat and see how we could fix it yeah so exploring like what has happened and, and how we could potentially make it a little bit better and the potential is yeah because the change you, you, you try to apply the next day it mightn't make it better but let's let's go together and let's see what happens even with coaches I think is valuable sometimes and I would have been at a fault with this in rigidly wanting things to work out and at the time, I did never, I never approached a team and said, look, lads, I've never done this before now, but this is what I'm attempting to do and let's work with it or whatever and look for their feedback. I didn't do that. I could now see that there's a huge benefit in that review of everyone coming along and say, well, look, at if you did more of this, if you did less of that, I wasn't clear on this. You moved on too fast here. We spent too long at this. So again, that whole thing of bringing in everybody, that, that too is review. You mentioned rigidness and chaos there in in the last couple of minutes. Mm. I myself, when I started out coaching, I would have had the cones would have been perfectly laid out. Everything mm. was exactly the distance. It would have looked the part, even if the session itself wasn't wasn't mm. great. But I have totally not totally gone the other way. But I'm very much at the other end of the spectrum now. I try and keep as little out as possible and, and try and have that sort of controlled chaos if that makes sense yeah oh madness all learning is messy I say now M-E-S-S-Y <laughs> learning is messy again if I get back to Ors Gulrish is situated at the corner of Griffith Avenue and Malahide Road it's in a very visual place there was no gym in Ors when I was there it was a field that had a massive footfall going by and it was an area in Marino Artain which is steeped in sport in St Vincent's football club and I suppose when I started out as a PE teacher I, PE teacher, I was letting know that and it took on a little bit of those cones had to be straight. The, the pitches had to be the same size and the drills the lads were doing had to be correct. The passing had to be fluid. It had to be caught. So I restricted everything. Drove them mad, I'd say. So they, they, they drove me mad. I knew then this, this isn't working. So while I might have had cones to form like small-sided areas or whatever else, I learned that out of the messiness, out of the chaos comes great structure. Yeah, they're, they're, out of chaos comes order. 
no chaos, no order. We're preparing people for chaotic situations. The more often they live in chaotic situations, the more they can fix the chaos, the more they get used to the chaos. So as a coach, you have to have that strength of character that I referred to earlier. And that's again why the assessment thing is so regular, that you're throwing yourself into something that, gee, this mightn't work. This might go belly up, but we'll fix it the next day. Maybe the next day it'll go belly up, but we'll, we'll attempt to fix it the next day. And Stephen, you'd often hear coaches tearing their hair out some games. Gee, I don't know how that game went so wrong. Training went great all week, <laughs> you know. And training went great all week, but it wasn't preparing for the situation you found in the game. It might have been very ordered, start, middle and end, everything lovely. That's required at times too, but a little bit of madness is required. And so it so could be coaches listening to this now going, right, I'm throwing the cones away. I don't need them anymore. <laughs> Liam Morgan said chaos is where the learning takes place. How do they go? How do they transition from that as lovely structured training that everything goes right, but they're restricted, as you say, to that sort of element of chaos? Okay, and I think there's a few things needed there. One, I think both coach and players need to know what the end result would be. So it's making correct decisions to either create space, defend space, make scores or whatever, if we're talking about that kind of a context. And they're doing that in the face of opposition. There's people there trying to stop them. There's a consequence to what they do. Physically, they may get tired. Technically, they may have skills up or down or whatever. So we're in, we're in that mix now where there's a huge number of variables. The fir- that's, that's the first thing they have to realise. Secondly, I think that no real valuable fix will occur quickly. If it occurs quickly, it's not a valuable fix. So it's going to require time. So there needs to be some stepping stones into the chaos, a little bit of chaos and a little bit of fix, a big piece of chaos, a small fix, another bit of fix, another bit of fix. So it isn't a matter of just letting things go hell bent madness all over the place and see how they learn. It, it, it takes time and you must have a vision for what is the correct outcome so that then you can stop the chaos. I mean, wow, look at look what's happened there. Look what has happened there. Now, now we review, and that's where it brings in those principles you'll be mentioning. So you clarify what order is like. You paint the picture of what order looks like in the midst of chaos. That takes time. So many factors contribute to so many performances that the reviewer, and this is where the coach acting as an observer, watching, watching, analyzing, being happy in their own skin that they're not people who are going around like a blue ass fly and not shouting and roaring. They're watching, watching, watching for the gems of solutions, of fixing. They need to know what they're like. And they also need to be able to analyze a player or a team and be able to see the individual components that need to be fixed. Might be physical, might be not going to bed in time. It might be that their left side, right side isn't what it should be. Uh, that's why the, the breadth of knowledge from the coach expected of the coach needs to be big as well. Yeah. And I suppose you know your stuff. Yeah. From a coach looking at that point, I suppose there's two sort of areas as well. There's like the practical side in terms of, well, did I have enough space? Did I have enough equipment for what we were trying to achieve in terms of if they're going to review that? Mm. That's, I suppose, a little bit easier to do to start off. But then in terms of the human element, like, how did the session go? Did the kids enjoy it? Did I accomplish what I was trying for? Is that sort of, would you divide it sort of that type of way in terms of review or is it more black and white? Did I meet my objectives? And if I didn't, how do I go forward to that? I don't know if it's as black and white as that. 
I'm just distracted a little bit now. I'm just thinking of a, of a friend, Jerry Mullins, who, who taught me. The first, the first thing a coach would have to do is have the plan right. Now, again, getting back to Roisin's phrase, it's not all about you. So the coach has the plan based for the players. And when the players arrive or the individual player arrives, it's now all about them. Jerry Mullins uses a phrase that nobody will see the hours you spent planning, but they'll know in a minute that you didn't. Now, that planning, sometimes it's the logistics of getting the bibs, balls and cones and all the various materials. That, 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 that's a necessary part of it. But another part of the planning is just getting yourself in a state of readiness to be able to watch what it is you have to watch for. And that, that, that takes time. That really does take time. And the confidence of the coach to be able to know, well, I will plan for this, but I will watch for the various factors that are contributing to either making it happen or not make it happen. It's very important that I can stand back and just look and just be, be patient about it all. Just give them all time to develop. The main aim of a coach should be getting back to the Brother Morgan is, is to help people to think for themselves. Now, that can seem a very aspirational outcome and very few people would question me on it. However, we might not like what people think. <laughs> we may not like, we, we may have people who are developing characters who will question us. And we may not like that. So how we actually react to these people, how what example we give to the person who is able to have a bit of flair, I would say creativity is to disconnect from the expected. So now within the context of my expected session, there's someone who does something that's unexpected. How do I react to that? Is that messing up my plan? Or is that wonderful in the context of what we've been trying to do? So coaches need to see their role very firmly, irrespective of their qualifications or experience. My main job here is to help people think for themselves. Now, let's see what they're thinking. Let's see, have they got the information to think in, in a proper way within the rules and regulations of the game, rather than just saying yes or no when I say, do you understand? Let's, let's give them that scope. But coaches have to be open to that freedom of helping people think for themselves. But that leads, like my, my next question is, what does the term successful coach mean to you? Is that what it is? Just uh, helping people? Helping people be able to speak for themselves in many cases, helping people to be able to fix things. Anyone who achieves anything, it's going to take ages. It's going to take dedication. It's going to take time getting used to the ups and downs. It's going to take juggling of work and free time and family and friends. Uh, you're, you're setting them out on, an, on, an, on a journey where struggle is an, an innate part of it. And I, I, I'm low, I, I was reluctant, I, I wasn't reluctant and low, I didn't know, I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't inform a lot of people I coach that really what we're going down is here, we're going down a road of struggle. So the aim of the coach, I think, is to help people develop social skills to be able to interact with others all the other various people. At times they may have to interview, interact with the press, with sponsors, with owners, with media, with other teammates. And at some levels they may just have to operate with some other teammates at a, at a level that's seen as low, but the standard is very high. But ultimately we're helping that person be a better person. And it fits into that global thing then. Better person first, better player second. The shortcut to helping them become a better player is a dangerous shortcut the shortcut or the journey to help someone be a better person it's fraught with roundabouts and cul-de-sacs and disappointments and red lights and all kinds of things but ultimately something far far more meaningful comes out of it 
we're running out of time. You've been brilliant with it so far, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. I have two more questions for you. The first one, what is the best book or resource that you would recommend to coaches listening? Well, I try to read. Uh, I, I don't always read all books cover to cover. I just look for some gems every now and then. And even some non-fictional books or fictional books. It's amazing how when your head is obsessed with coaching, <laughs> you'll see, God, that, 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 that could be helpful. But if, it, if there was one, and I suppose I've said this to a few, it's the Successful Coaching by Rainer Martins is one of these books. It's about fourth or fifth edition out now. I, I, I'm surprised how often I go to it and think, jeepers, I never saw that before. A little box, a little description, even, even a, a chapter at some stages. So I suppose that would have to be the one that I go to most often and is the most dog-eared and surprises me the, more, more often than any other one. Last question. What are your top tips for a developing coach? Okay, if it was someone in under 10 or that kind of age group, I, I would say they need to ooze the fact to everyone around them that they love this. They love the moment. They love being here. There's nothing better than right now doing what they do. I think to be a good coach at that kind of underage level, it, it needs to bubble out of them in every way. This, this, this is wonderful. God, it's great to be alive. We're here. Now, backing that, I think the next thing I would say to coach, they need, they need to work hard. I mean, let's say you are coaching the under 10 team down the road. Your, your day needs to be planned. You can't arrive down any, any which way. You need to be planned. You need to put work in to look like it's effortless. So I think no matter where you are, enjoy it, work hard. And like the John Shields lesson to me, see, see the big picture. See, see beyond your team. See beyond the player. See the bigger picture of each of them. But that sense of enjoyment, you know, I think it's so underrated. One picture that came from me watching sport this summer was the Irish women's hockey team running on to the final, smiling and laughing and waving at everybody. Gee, I thought they're winners already. I, th I thought that was a wonderful picture of, gee, this is great, we're in the world final rather than the other austere, severe, look, ooh, final, we better react in some way. Yeah, it gets back to, to that, that idea of really, really enjoying it. I'm lucky in the sport of athletics, we have the sense of a PB, a personal best. So it's kind of ingrained a lot. You can see people in the road races, which I help out on, showing such delight, such emotion, because they've achieved something better. Coaches can also be the same. They can have that real sense of delight that someone that didn't get much game time is now able to get more game time. Someone that's been really working hard at doing something now achieves it in the context of a game that maybe they didn't, they didn't win. Enjoy it. Enjoy it and, and constantly work at it. And, and I suppose if I was concluding the best coaches operate in a situation too where they don't know, I would have been surprised to see an element of what might be tension or nervousness with some of the great coaches because they accept the thing I don't know what's going to happen here. And that acceptance of what they don't know what's going to happen gets them on, a, on, a, on an edge that's, that's able to maximise what happens. Not too much different to preparing yourself to play very well. You need to relax. You need to be in control. You need to be able to smile. And you need to be able to do it when, when the moment comes. Coaching isn't much different to that. Look, Liam, I could talk to you for hours here. Uh, it's been really, really enjoyable. I think there's a huge amount for the listeners to take from it in, t in terms of their own coaching career. Thanks a million for coming on. 
Thanks for listening to The Coaching Bubble. I hope you learned something that can help your own coaching in some way. Anything referenced on the show, like books or podcasts, if you follow our Twitter page, at Bubble Coaching, we'll put everything up there. You can find us on SoundCloud. We'd love some feedback, so feel free to leave a comment or a review. Once again, the show is brought to you by the Coach Education and Development Centre of the Camogie Association. Thanks for listening. Till next time.